Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast. I'm Adam Collins and with me today, it's not Jeff Lemon who's having a breather this week as he continues to plough through the book he's currently writing. I have with me... Our summer newsreader, it's Daniel Norcross. Hello, Norky. Oh, how lovely to be back on The Final Word, my favourite podcast. Super to be back. Um, now, you said indeed that I am the, the summer newsreader. And uh, that's because uh, listeners to this programme will remember that we'd worked out that there are six months in an English winter, really, when nothing <laughs> happens. There were six years in the World War Two, And so we corresponded one month to each year. Well... Obviously, there's been coronavirus, so that's that's rather put things back. I, mean, I, I didn't give you an update because I didn't know where we were in the war. Mm. I mean, we kept on going backwards. I mean, for all I knew, we could still be in 1941. But the great news is that with the Test Series confirmed between England and the West Indies, Test Cricket will start again on the 8th of July. So at the time of recording... I can divulge, hot off the press, that we have gone back to the 1st of January, 1945. (laughs) Nazis in all sorts of trouble. They're beginning to run out of fuel for their military. Tanks are abandoned where they stand. And the Soviet Union puppet Lublin Committee has assumed controls of portions of Poland liberated by the Red Army. And, And so it goes on. Actually, towards the end of this week... Um, Hitler's going to give his last ever radio address as the Ger- uh, the Russians amass around the outskirts of Berlin. So, you know, we've got light at the end of the tunnel again. I can't tell you how delighted I am. But to anyone who's new to the show who perhaps found us after the Nasser Hussein interview or has picked it up during lockdown, they won't have a clue what you're talking about. But as Daniel touched on then, the, the six months of winter, through the English winter rather, um, we were sort of tracking where it fitted into the six years of World War Two. So that came to an abrupt halt when we had no English cricket to deal with um, when coronavirus hit. But as you say, we're, we're back on track. We're into the into 1945, so we're only... Well, I suppose it depends how you interpret it. The victory tests um, started in the second week of May 1945 and then, of course, test cricket proper in 1946. But, um, yes, it is. It's within touching distance. And um, we know that... Uh, we, we talked on the Encore edition the other day about the three test matches against the West Indies now being not not, not pencilled in, but inked in because the West Indies Cricket Board um, has said they will be playing on the 8th the 16th and the 24th of July and we can't wait. Daniel, you're going to one of those, aren't you? I am. I am. I'm going into a biosecure environment in Manchester for the test match on the 24th of July. Um, I have to get COVID tested, then hopefully pass. And then you have to isolate for two days. And then I have to make my way in a bubble which in this case is my car, which has moss growing on it. I mean, I don't know if the car's <laughs> going to work. I haven't got, got in it for the last 10 weeks. Uh, then I have to drive myself to Manchester, not stopping anywhere. So um, I, I'm going to have to be buying myself some, the sort of thing I thought I was going to have to leave till in my 70s, <laughs> you know, 
for for men's uh, slightly degrading prostate I'm going to have to have with me in the car because I can't can't get out can't do a Dominic Cummings can't pop into a service station none of that so what what, what is the advice what's the official advice on where you go for a wee well, I can't properly divulge that yet, but there is a designated loo break, and I hope <laughs> I'll be able to. I'll be able to tell you exactly where it is. But suffice to say, it is authorised, and, uh, and and it's a cricket ground. So uh, that's that's between somewhere and somewhere in the Midlands. You're going to be stopping to relieve yourself a couple of days before yeah. the third uh, West Indies Test match. Well, we'll have to get when, when the time comes. We'll get you back to run us through how that how that drive's gone. But, Put it simply, there is literally a cricket ground that will be taking the piss uh, <laughs> on, on the way between London and Manchester. Uh, and then I stay in a hotel for, uh, and se- segregated from the players. So the broadcasters stay together, uh, players are in a separate place and all the details will be divulged shortly. I'll let you know what they all are when I find out in a couple of weeks. So through the course of lockdown, we were going to have you on today anyway, uh, uh, Daniel, because uh, we, we were going to talk through what well, what we've been up to really ahead of um, our conversation with Mark Nicholas and that's been calling the shots. So the next edition of that was going to be going up this Friday. It's actually going to be delayed by a week. Uh, so it remains in keeping with the Pinch Hitter um, magazine, which you can uh, hear about on the, the Calling the Shots podcast. But it, it's been a most rewarding way for us to spend lockdown in many respects, Daniel. I mean, I, I feel like it's the sort of thing where if not for this, we never would have found the necessary time. It's a bit like um, people who've gone and written a book. Although a lot of people said they were going to write a book. I haven't seen much evidence of people actually doing it yet. But instead of writing a book, we, we, we teamed up to undertake a project that we've been talking about for a while. And we knew it was going to be a big thing to do. And it has probably been bigger than we even imagined at the start as far as the legwork required to get each episode off the ground. But as well, it's been even more rewarding than I thought as well because we've, we really have learnt a lot. It's been the most staggeringly difficult, painful, and in, and at the same time enjoyable experience of my working life, because um, because because and of that's, the just our, that's just that's just that's just that's just our two AM phone calls every night. That's right. That's right. Exactly that. And it, and it is literally. I mean, there's a fourteen hour days you've got to put in because uh, because of the nature of lockdown and because it's a two weekly cycle. We're having to, and you're doing a lot of this. The the research. You're trying to find out the entire history of cricket broadcasting. And in in chunks, uh, you've got to do the research in two weeks. Interview people, find lots of associated archive material. I mean, I think some of the most thrilling bits have been raiding Peter Baxter's archive. Peter Baxter's the former producer of Test Match Special, and um, he retired about fifteen years ago. And he's kept all of this fantastic old stuff. You know, we found that brilliant clip of a village cricket game played in 1937 with the rain pouring and ducks and tractors. And then we found, you know, Headley Verity's 14 wickets at Lords. Uh, well, not all of them, of course, because it was the nature of it. We discovered great old Australian stuff, the history of it. And just, uh, yeah, it was a learning, it's been a learning experience for both of us, hasn't it? But yeah. doing it in lockdown is about eight times to ten times tougher than it would be if we were just in a studio where we could record and then slice up and... Well, we know. wouldn't. I think the, the reality is we, we wouldn't have had the chance no. to have done the interviews that, that we've done. I think the major difference between uh, what we sketched out and what, what the reality has been uh, has been the nature of the interview. So, and that's why we thought um, today was a good opportunity to give a bit of insight to that. So when we w- were sketching this out, we, we thought, well, look, we'll, we'll get a couple of people on pair up. We'll, we'll ask very targeted questions and we'll, um, you know, we might talk to them for ten minutes quarter of an hour, slice in a few grabs and, and, and there we go. But in practice, we, we've talked to perhaps four or five people per episode and talked to them for anywhere up to two and a half hours, which was the length of the original cut with Mark Nicholas. And that does make for a lot of additional work. But that 
has been where the the magic's been found in sort of dredging quite deep to uh, interrogate you know often memories that go back. 30 or 40 years, but also the lived experience of, of being a commentator through some fairly revolutionary times as far as radio and television is concerned. It's been extraordinary, hasn't it? The anecdotes that we've managed to te- te- well, I say tease out. It doesn't take a lot to tease stuff out of people in lockdown. I think uh, mm. lots of information is pouring forth as uh, that great phrase, isn't it? Let, let all the evils that lie lurking in the mud hatch out. Well, they're not evils, but they are hatching out <laughs> and we're getting some incredible stories. The problem for us, of course, is the sheer volume of the material so uh, what we're having to do well I say having to do but what what is a nice thing to do is that when you discover you've got these terrifically marvellous anecdotes you've got the opportunity to to play them and uh, play them in full on the on calling the shots itself of course we're trying to find the nuggets that move the narrative on so you know the history of what's happening and in the process we're just getting these marvellous stories there's going to be a couple coming up today um, that I'd never heard, including some fantastic stories about Kerry Packer mm. and, and some terrific accents as well. Uh, the man that you're going to be hearing from later has a, a terrific facility, doesn't he, to, to mimic. I mean, when we were on the on the call with him for two and a half hours, he would go into Greggy and Benno and, you know, Bill Laurie and uh, it was just, it was scintillating, really fascinating. All the time, of course, I don't know if you're doing this, I'm doing it, I'm looking at the, the the little clock go round and I go this is really fascinating but um, I've got to sift through <laughs> 40,000 words in a minute and try and cut that down to three <laughs> yeah yeah. The, the, the impressions that you mentioned I mean uh, Mark's uh, yeah he's as good as Billy Birmingham when it comes to uh, taking off the, the big four from Channel 9 uh, and others who he's worked with uh, along the way and I think the reason why we thought we'd, we'd put out Mark in, in full, not quite full because we've tidied it up a little bit because you don't want to hear us um, uh, carrying on as well. So we're, we're trying to stick to Mark as much as we can. But um, is And I mentioned this last week when promoting it, but his passion for commentary, his recalls, extraordinary. I mean, some of those passages of play which he would have watched on television as a young boy, we went back and found that they're more or less word perfect. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And he obviously had a care for commentary. It, he'll you'll find out in a moment one of the first things he says is how he used to set up and watch the game and the 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 kind of routine that he went through and how he would practice the commentary himself and then deliver little reports at the end of the day so the commentary he was he, as an art form he's really good on he's he's really hot on it and one of the things i was ruminating on and sometimes you know you take broadcasters for granted because you've lived with them and mark nicholas to me was the guy who did channel four you know did a bit of stuff on uh, on Sky and did stuff for Channel 4, the big stuff for Channel 4 in the late 90s and the early part of the 21st century. But the more you dig into this, the more you realise that England didn't really have a TV face because our TV face was Richie Benno. Mm. And it'd been, it was Richie Benno from 1970 uh, all the way through, really, till, till 2005 in a way, but Mark became the, the, the anchor. And so... Who are the great who are the great English TV guys on a global stage? And Mark, of course, has got this fabulously varied career. He's worked all around the world. He's worked with Channel 9. He's worked for the ICC, worked for Channel 4, he'd worked for Sky. So I think he's got a pretty good claim, although he would never make the claim himself, to be perhaps the most preeminent English TV commentator, which is something that I suppose was staring me in the face, but I hadn't really considered until 
delving into it all. Yeah, or what is it? A prophet's never welcome in their hometown sort of syndrome. Although he's not to suggest that he hasn't been welcome on English television um, screens in, in the last 15 years since four uh, concluded their, their stanza with the rights. He's, of course, been the front man of Channel 5's highlights and so on. But, yeah, it was Channel... After that, really, it was Channel 9 and, and Supersport in South Africa as well. So he, he along with Mike Hazeman, like helms that, that coverage uh, during the summer... Well, during the winter months, rather, from an English perspective. So to make it a bit more digestible as a podcast, we're actually going to put it out in two parts. So today, in a little bit, you'll hear the first hour or so. And then when I have Jeff back with me later in the week, we'll put together part two, which will go out over the weekend, which we've done typically as the encore edition through the lockdown period. Uh, in that, we'll have Mark talking about the 2005 Ashes, the end of Richie Benno's career, and then his days with Channel 9 with some great anecdotes about Kerry Packer woven in there. That'll also include Mark's reflections on the Indian television cricket revolution through the last 20 years or so. Uh, we're at the moment working on... A new episode that'll go up on week Friday, which will be about alternate cricket commentary. Episode one, we had Ali Mitchell and Ian Smith on looking at sort of the biggest moments of uh, of their commentary careers. Then we went into the history between 1922 and 1948 of the, the early radio pioneers. Then we looked at the Test Match Special, uh, where we were talking to Jonathan Agnew, Vic Marks, Peter Baxter, and kind of working out how that became such an institution through the second half of the 20th century. And then we landed on the TV callers in episode four. So it's been a lot of fun so far. You can pick it up in the feed and listen to the old episodes with Daniel and myself. Before we go to Mark, though, Daniel, uh, it would be remiss of me if we didn't pick up a little bit of and I won't do Jeff's voice, but we're going to do some Nerd Pledge, uh, which, of course, you know well from uh, when we've um, when we've had you on the show in the past. We've had you on for Nerd Pledge Quiz a couple of times, haven't we? Uh, last year oh, yeah. we, were, we were sitting in a restaurant. Uh, how did we, we, you know what we were sitting the first time we had you on for this? It was in a cafe at King's Cross where we had a bite to eat. And as a result of that, we missed Owen Morgan hitting 14 sixes in a, in a one-day innings against Afghanistan. <laughs> that was all. We did, didn't we? That was absolutely, it was, yes, it was, I mean, I, I don't know if I preferred Nerd Pledge to a record-breaking Owen Morgan innings, but they were both hugely entertaining. <laughs> and then, and we, then I think I did another one the day that Jeffrey finally went back to England, uh, Australia, yeah. after he'd been in England for months, which was a glorious sunny day in a flat, wasn't it? And very close to missing his flight. It was always going to happen with Jeff being the way he, he's built, but uh, he came within moments of missing his flight back to Australia that afternoon after we perhaps recorded for a fraction too long and of course Dan you, you played your role uh, through Nerd Pledge when you were filling in for Jeff uh, when he was overseas on holiday uh, in January but here we are again and it's evolved a little bit since you were last on uh, Daniel in that we revisit numbers that we haven't quite got right the first time around and Ilya Andrews was one of those we talked about his 1196 um, or 11.96 or 11.496 on Friday in the Encore edition before we talked to Jason Gillespie or before we repackaged that Jason Gillespie interview from November 2017 and he wrote to thank us for reading that, which of course we we're happy to do, and so say that we were correct in, in noting it was best bowling figures, 11.496, but he uh, lamented that we forgot his hint, uh, which was that it was someone having played with Dean Jones in the same game. So, of course, Alan Border, 11 for 96, where he took 7 for 46, and then 4 for 50 against the West Indies in January 89. So a rare win in that era against the West Indies. It was one of those strange things that kept happening, didn't it? Australian part-time spinners taking loads of wickets at the SCG and it's, it's also got a nice tie-in with the next episode of Calling the Shots because Jeff tells a truly a lovely little tale of Alan Border trying to reach for a 
a coat that's slightly too high for him and asking, <laughs> asking Michael Holding to get it down for him. So it's, it's, yeah, one it's, of those, it's, it's funny. It's one of those things where it, it may not even make the episode due to the uh, due to the, the, the nature of the anecdote. It didn't quite fit in with what we were talking about, but it, it's very funny. Uh, so we might we might get him to retell it on the final word another another day. But uh, Daniel, what I did say for eleven ninety six, what I did pick uh, were the bowling figures of Charles Marriott on debut in 1933. Do you know of Charles Marriott, Daniel, before we continue and before I tell you a little bit more about this fascinating Irishman? Well, I I presume he's the guy that's called Father Marriott. I've heard of yes. him, but I don't I don't. Tell me the story, Adam. Well, uh, well it's quite possible you, you, you learnt about him in school, actually, and we'll come to why in a moment. But um, to recap, took 11 for 96 on Test Taboo, his only test took Pfeiffer in the first innings, six in the second, picked up George Headley. This was a test match against the Windies in uh, 1933, but was taken uh, to India in 33-34, didn't play. He actually went on tour in 1924-25 to South Africa as well, where he, where he didn't get an opportunity to play in the test matches. But it's just this quirk that anyone that's taken te- 10 wickets in, in test cricket, no one has a better bowling average of 8.7. Uh, and he took 711 first-class wickets and made just 574 first-class runs. So not many uh, people can can say that across a, a, a career which spanned two decades. But the stories, I mean, better than that. And I suspected it would be because why would he only play one test? Well, it turns out he played it at age 37. So it kind of stands to reason that he was given this opportunity at the end because he didn't play first-class cricket till he was 25. He was busy spending the, the early years of his 20s uh, fighting in, in the First World War. So he was actually there at the Somme, remarkably, in 1916. Uh, that would have been utterly harrowing. But, I mean, he went on to be gassed in 1917. He re- returned home with shell shock. He ended up uh, going to Cambridge in 1919, which is where the father nickname came from because he was a relatively old man to be um, studying as an undergraduate in his mid-20s by that stage. But um, the first time that he went to a county championship match, uh, he played. <laughs> that was for Lancashire at the start of his career. Uh, ended up um, going into the, the education system. He was a teacher at your old school, Daniel, Dulwich College. Ooh, he went I there say. in 1921 to study, or to teach rather, modern languages and to look after the cricket team which he did for five years at the start. But along the way, he was permitted to play county cricket in the summer school holidays, which is why he would go off and do a couple of months with Kent while the pupils were were, were back home. And, and that's when he started this kind of weird career where he'd play a handful of games per season. And he did extremely well, but never got that chance to to play for England until 1933 when Headley Verity was injured. Another callback to calling the shots, the man you mentioned before. Of course, Headley Verity tragically died in, in, in the Second World War. But uh, yes, at Dulwich College, he, he, was, um, he, was, he taught Trevor Bailey, who of course went on to be a commentator on BBC Test Match Special after playing for England. Another man we've had on calling the shots or had snippets of in, in calling the shots. So yes, the, uh, the Charles Marriott finished with 11 Test wickets and 711 first class wickets in his uh, in his long career but only one test match and he took 11 for 96 when he was there so oh. um, so there's the story of a man who I, I feel we should I feel we should know more about Father Marriott it sounds like a cracking life that he led although one that may have been a little bit unfulfilled as far as playing for England's concerned yeah that's a superb story isn't it it's not shabby figures either there would have been a lot of people around that time who'd have um, started their careers quite late of course because the first world war you know, if you were if you were eighteen, nineteen in in nineteen fourteen, mm. then by the time cricket restarted, you'd be sort of twenty four, twenty five, wouldn't you? I guess, and uh, you wouldn't have played a great deal of cricket. I don't think, I don't think uh, the first world. Well, I think the pitches basically in no man's land would have been a little bit. <laughs> 
helpful to the spinner, to say the very least. So it wouldn't have been a, wouldn't have been a good idea batting on them. There's another modern languages teacher at Dulwich who's got a cricket connection, since you mentioned it. Mm. Roger Knight, the former captain of Surrey, who was tipped as a future England captain at one point. Didn't quite happen for him. What did he do? Did he, he was, bowl? He was an all-rounder. He was predominantly a left-handed batsman. So he batted about number five. He's captain of such great players as Jeff Howarth, and Sylvester Clark, Robin Jackman in that Surrey team in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, yeah, he, he's, he was quite a severe gentleman. Um, he taught <laughs> foreign languages and uh, you didn't mess about. I mean, when I was at that school, uh, yeah, that was, it was, the cane was not uh, unusual. Um, yeah. Beatings so, happened quite regularly. <laughs> to put it bluntly. Uh, yeah. So Marriott went to Cambridge in 1919, which is the year he first played county cricket for Lancashire, as, as I mentioned before, which of course was the season which was in some way affected by the Spanish flu. But I cannot find any sort of writing on it. I've been digging back through the wisdom of 1920 to see if I could um, find any evidence of, of uh, but yeah, I mean, it, the season must have been affected by Spanish flu because that was the year the, the pandemic was, was ripping through the world. But yeah, odd to not see much in there. I wonder whether we'll see some writing in this year's Wisdom Almanac, or should I say next year's Wisdom Almanac about this year, of course, the, the effect coronavirus is having on it and linking back what will be 101 years. We will see. Uh, another number that we didn't uh, get right last time, uh, Daniel, was uh, Marianne Webb's 382. Uh, we had... Um, it is another one of your points of interest, 382. I said it was um, the amount of time that Ollie Pope was in the middle when he made his maiden oh. test century at Port Elizabeth uh, earlier this year. Uh, you've just finished, well, you're just writing, aren't you, a piece about Ollie Pope and you've had a chat to the England captain, Joe Root, about him. Be still my beating heart, Ollie Pope. Um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to see a lot of Ollie Pope's uh, early career. Well, I mean early career. He's only about 22, isn't he? <laughs> but... Uh, he averages 60 in first class and I saw an innings a few years back against Yorkshire and he was playing against the uh, England captain Joe Root and Johnny Bairstow standing up to the stumps and uh, it was just the most sumptuous innings he hadn't played a game for England at that point he was only 20 years old he had 158 not out my favourite number in cricket for all sorts of reasons Basil Oliveira, KP he's got it a couple of times and it was at the Oval uh, Joe Root was watching all of this innings and so I'm writing a piece about the, the favourite innings I've seen live and it was just the way he went through the gears he marshalled his side when he came in Surrey was 69 for 4 uh, and then they lost a 5th wicket when Ricky Clark got out and he just shepherded the tail, he went through the gears and Joe Root talks about him really eloquently actually, he remembers the innings incredibly well and says uh that what he found so amazing, I, I try and do my Joe Root voice, slightly, <laughs> slightly, slightly fair. He says, yes, he, he got a little feather on one and Johnny dropped it off uh, Steve Patterson. And what was noticeable was that the very next ball, he changed his guard and he moved across. And you don't see that very often with a young player. And uh, <laughs> it, I, 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 I think I'm fair to Joe Root. He's, uh, Joe Root's a genius. But... He's, he, he gave us this marvellous interview, marvellous recollection and a really solid, solid praise for a guy that you know very well, Adam. I think that he is the best young English batsman I've seen uh, possibly ever at that age to play the sorts of innings he does. We saw him against South Africa, of course, hit that scintillating hundred. It's his game intelligence I really love, but 
I don't suppose that 382 was referring to the number of minutes that Ollie Pope took. No, and it also wasn't referring to Scott Muller's uh, test cap number, funnily enough. It was referring to uh, Beth Mooney's T20 batting average, which at the moment is 38.2. I spent an hour on the phone to Beth the other day, actually, interviewing her for a, a magazine uh, feature that she's appearing in uh, for Women's Crick Zone in a couple of months' time. And um, she, she's got a great story, Beth Mooney, because you remember that she's one of these players who um, was sort of a fair way back in the queue in some respects because Elisa Healy being the, the Australian wicketkeeper, she was going nowhere and Beth wasn't quite at that level as far as the way she was being discussed. This is back before the WBBL started and since then she's been outstanding and made her way as a, as a specialist bat and she wants to wicketkeep for Australia but she's happy to sort of play second fiddle to Healy in that respect. But, she, you know, she was player of the tournament at the T20 World Cup uh, back in March before coronavirus. So that is the 382 for Marianne Webb. Thank you ever so much. New numbers, Daniel. Let's start with 245 from David. It's Nobby Clark's cap number, uh, the former England bowler. And Shaob Malik uh, made 245 against England in, in the desert in 2016. But I fancy it might be a game that you remember very fondly yeah oh yeah ah now then that was that could it be Adelaide it is one of my favourite test matches I've got a little story on that for you I was it was snowing in England I was doing test match sofa which we're going to talk about in the forthcoming calling the shots and I was doing an event and I had to drive back through the snow and I got in and as I came in Soph our commentator was calling the third wicket but she thought it was a replay of the second wicket because if you remember it's called at slip I think it would have been Clark it's called at slip yep. to make it two for three and um, she didn't bother calling it because she thought she was watching a replay <laughs> <laughs> so one of the most dramatic moments in English cricket you know because England had got that escape at Brisbane the previous game and then they'd come out all guns blazing taking these three wickets there was the, the run out wasn't there first mm. up then and yeah, yeah, totally missed it. But um, it was, yeah, that was one of my favourite test matches, that Adelaide test match, as you can imagine. So yeah, they were bowled out, don't they? Australia for 245. Bowled out for it 245. Then England went, on to make, yeah, England went on to make 620, uh, where KP makes a double. Uh, and that's, I mean, that was the second of KP's brilliant innings at Adelaide. The first one is 140 odd in um, 2006. is one of the best I've ever seen, actually. But uh, that is 245. A few options there for David. Is it when England bowled Australia out in the first innings at Adelaide in 2010 to kick off what ended up being a memorable series win? Let us know. 324 from Julian Campbell. Now, uh, Daniel, this has to be Dean Jones because there, there are two very important 324s for Dino. One, it's his cap number. He, he was the 324th Australian man to play Test cricket. But he also made an unbeaten 324 in the summer of 1994-95, which in the Wisdom Cricket Monthly Mag I, I wrote about a few years ago as my favourite summer. Um, it was kind of when Dino was formally retired from international cricket at the end of the South Africa series in 94 I think from memory he said look I'm done as an Australian player but then he had a great year um, with both the white ball and in this case the yellow ball they were using yellow balls for day night shield cricket it was at the MCG I wasn't there because it was a Saturday so I was playing but I know at the time we were getting updates on the radio from the ABC and Dino uh, was 324 not out when Victoria eventually declared on a squillion in the last innings of that game Darren Lehman made 202 not out from about 200 balls it was sort of a, a sign of things to come with with Lehman being able to bludgeon attack slate in a game but uh, that, I'm going to take look there's, there's nothing more to add there really it's got to be Dean no, Jones it's got to be DJ especially I've listened to this program often enough to know that it's got to be Dean Jones <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you to Julian Campbell let's hope it is uh, Alex Brown 640 now 
We know that Alex is a New Zealand fan. We, we occasionally correspond on Twitter. And 6.40 and a New Zealander, for mine, that almost certainly has to be the bowling figures of Doug Bracewell when he bowled Australia out at Hobart in 2011 on that green seamer, of course, um, uh, six for 40. Uh, David Warner was left standing carrying his bat, but uh, Australia fell around them. It was his first test ton, uh, David Warner. He ended up uh, picking up Nathan Lyon. They won by eight runs. Dougie Bracewell, I think these days he's just as well known for the delivery he bowled to Adam Voges, which was incorrectly identified as a no ball at Wellington in 2006. Dane Voges goes on to make a, a double ton, but a very useful bowler, and that was a momentous day for New Zealand cricket, knocking off Australia at Hobart. I remember it very, very well. I thoroughly enjoyed it, I've got to say. But uh, yeah, D- Doug Bracewell. I, I kind of loved Doug Bracewell. He always, there was a Brendan Bracewell years back who burst onto the scene in 1978 against England, and he was this whip-it thin ginger guy. So I've always, I basically then with John Bracewell, and I just had a thing for Bracewells. Very good. Thank you so much, Alex Brown. Very generous, 6.40. Uh, we have a, a double header, a double bubble for 2.39, uh, Daniel. So this is where, on our Patreon page, two people have picked the same number. So Jeff has elegantly uh, elevated uh, the second person on the list to join the first, which was Glenn Shepherd, and the second was Byron Cooper Fogarty. Now, uh, Glenn was born in the 70s, and he says that there's only one Aussie legend back then. So looking at the cap numbers, they're... they're uh, it, it doesn't quite stack up because um, Dougie Walters, you know, he, he was a great Aussie legend and he, he was cap number 237. Keith Stackpole was 238, but 239 neither here nor there. But 23.9, if you want to interpret it that way, that yes. was the bowling average of the great DK Lilly. So um, let's go with that um, for Glenn Shepherd, I reckon. 239, 23.9, that's quite elegant. Yeah, that I think that does make sense. That does make sense. There's, there's one other option, I suppose. I don't suppose it would be this option because uh, I'm thinking of the batting average of a man that is, is not close to my heart, <laughs> um, uh, Pelham Warner. And you may not know why. It, it, you may think, well, hang on, didn't he manage the body line to... He was a bit of a quizzling traitor. Uh, and we discovered a fair few things about him on calling the shots. He sounds like a terrible broadcaster. And he was really... He sided with Gubby Allen. He didn't like what Douglas Jardine was up to. He didn't have the grit and determination and, <laughs> and, and hard edge. So, do you know, it could be it could be Plum, who very nearly scuppered the whole tour by getting a bit wussy over the body line. Oh, I'm not sure that we should do this, you know. I was grow a pair. <laughs> God's sake. Of course, you're sitting in a room right now with a portrait of Douglas, Jar- Douglas Jardine in your sitting room. I am. <laughs> yeah, he, he looks down at me with his beneficent gaze every day. I ask myself, what would Jardine do whenever I make any decisions? Another 239, which we might attribute to Byron, is the uh, cap number of Abid Ali, who is one of three test cricketers to have a better batting average than Don Bradman. He's currently played three test matches, two tonnes. His average is 107, so only behind, of course, Andy Gantom, who um, made a, a century at the first time of asking and didn't play again, and Curtis Patterson, who is one of the unluckier uh, modern Australian players. Of course, he's um, only... Well, he played two test matches, made a half century at Brisbane, a ton, a big ton at Canberra and hasn't been seen since, although I suspect Patterson will get an opportunity to add to his career at some point, And I'm sure Abbott Alley will as well. So let's give that to Byron Cooper Fogarty. Thank you to you and thank you to Glenn Shepherd. And the final number for today on Nerd Pledge, Daniel, is 283 or 2.83 from Laura Dorr. I've got a great thought for this one. Well, I hope you do because, I mean, there's no 
significant batting scores in test cricket. I mean, in terms of caps, the best we've got is Wayne Clark or Gavin Tong. Um, the England uh, the 283rd uh, test cricketer was a man by the name of Mandy Mitchell Innes. Uh, his, his name was Norman, but he went by the first name Mandy, would you believe? <laughs> he played a oh, test man. for England in uh, 1935, another one test one day, go figure. Anyway, but uh, uh, the floor is yours. Have you got something better than that? I'm all ears. I have. I have, I think. And I really, I because this was a number that actually uh, popped into my head when I first said it, and I don't know why these kind of figures stick, but the very great and truly genius um, Australian medium-fast bowler, they say, Charlie Turner, the terror. Charlie <laughs> Terror Turner, you'll be familiar with him, mm. born in 1862. When he came to England in 1888, he took, now, wait for this, 283 wickets <laughs> on that tour, 283. Very good. Only, only two people have ever taken more wickets in an English summer. He was doing this as a member of the Australian side. There, there was no rotation policy then for your fast-medium bowler. He took 17 for 50 in one game, 14 bowls, two LBWs, and, get this, a stumping. So you've got a keeper standing up to the medium quickie. Only Titch Freeman, who picked up 300 wickets in a season, uh, and Tom Richardson have ever taken more wickets in an English summer. He took, in total, 314 wickets. So they didn't even rest him for the for the Jazz Hat Ponzi games against the Lavinia Duchess of Norfolk's <laughs> eleven or that kind of thing. He his the terror was out there every game in eighteen eighty eight. I want it to be him. It, he, I, I used to have a book when I was a kid that David Frith curated, which was a pictorial history of Ashes series. And you check out Charlie Turner, as I recall, there was a period in his career when he had the most magnificent moustache. And uh, it, it was one of Australia's greatest bowlers. He ended up with a first-class average of about 15. Yeah. 990-odd wickets. Very hard for an Aussie to take 1,000 wickets because he didn't play anything like as much first-class mm. cricket. So, you know, this guy was probably the premier fast bowler of his age. That is brilliant, Daniel. Well, Titch Freeman, you mentioned before, he, he would have been more expensive in his wicket. He wasn't he known for taking a truckload of wickets but bowling all day and conceding hundreds of runs along the way? Yeah. Well, yeah, because in those days people had small bats, so he'd bowl a load of long hops, filthy long hops, and uh, get catches down at the backward square, wouldn't he? I mean, he didn't play for England very much, Titch Freeman. Uh, there were a lot of good spinners around at the time. You've got Wilf Rhodes, for example, mm. and what have you. Uh, but he's prolific. He's got more wickets, more first-class wickets than anybody other than Rhodes, over 3,000, I believe. That is the expert knowledge that we love from Daniel Norcross on Nerd Pledge. Thank you for being part of it. Jeff would have said, had he been here off the top, that Nerd Pledge, if you want to be part of it, it's how you support the show via the Patreon page. So P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patron, with an E, dot com forward slash the final word. And you put in a Nerd Pledge or a number that you will, with a decimal point, hopefully, well, you can put a whole number in, nothing's stopping you from putting in a round number, but usually the decimal point will help us um, as a clue to what you're pointing towards as far as cricketing history is concerned. And um, we've had some fantastic numbers added today. So thank you ever so much to David, Julian, Alex, Glenn, Byron, and Laura for being part of Nerd Pledge, for being part of the support that keeps the show on the road week in, week out through the Patreon page. Now, Daniel, tell us what's ahead on calling the shots when it's back in the feed next week. Well, this is a real ripper of an episode and it's the hardest one that Adam and I have had to put together because it is the story of the disruptors and it's a sort of a generation of broadcasters, journalists, uh, podcasters, what have you, who emerged in the second decade of this century 
And it's a story I don't think that's ever been told in its entirety. There are people who know about some of them. They know about your exploits with White Line and then buying the rights out in the UAE. Uh, they know about Jeff's exploits in similar ways and, and the PC wrote about Channel 9 uh, plenty of people know about Test Match Sofa and Guerrilla Cricket that went on to buy the rights in Ireland but I don't think anybody has ever pieced these together we've got the marvellous glue that is Jared Kimber mm. who has been a superb contributor to this episode uh, there was a lot of time spent trying to cut down his words <laughs> I can tell you. Uh, we have uh, we have Jeff himself the mighty Jeff Lemon We've got Nigel Henderson from uh, Guerrilla Cricket and Test Match Sofa, which I founded in 2009. And we've got Andrew Miller, the former editor, well, and now, and now current editor, so he's been back and forth of Crick Info and editor of The Cricketer, to tell a story which uh, I think it's a good news story. It culminates in a lovely moment. The difficulty for us, the listener will appreciate, is that unfortunately we have to talk about ourselves a bit. So we haven't worked out precisely who's going to do which lines because it's sort of it's, it's difficult it's tricky isn't it it's kind of yeah. icky ow what we'll do you say I'm sure we'll find a way through uh, Daniel again thanks so much for uh, coming on and, uh, and stepping into Jeff's shoes today you've done a fine job and after we take a bit of a breather it'll be Daniel and me with Mark Nicholas while we take a break, let's note that the final word is once again coming to you from a train. We're back to the World Cup Daily Days. It's Jeff here. I'm on a train between Melbourne and Sydney, going up to Sydney to talk to some people for my book. And I'm not on the show otherwise this week, partly because I was supposed to record a segment with Adam. I was going to call him up on magical uh, international phone things and, and record a two-part thing while I was on this train but it's not working because there's no signal out here we're only in rural Victoria but the signal doesn't work which is strangely relevant to what we were going to talk about so I'm recording it solo for the very reason that would make us do this segment in the first place we've talked about satellite phones before and the usefulness thereof and we've also talked about this other duvawaki that can turn your normal phone into a satellite messaging phone. So you can get worldwide global sat phone functionality on your normal phone. So there's this network called the Iridium Network, which is all of the satellites that uh, circle the Earth. And your normal phone can tap into that Iridium Network, which means it can send messages uh, to SMS numbers, to app-to-app -app messaging, and also send emails wherever you are on the planet. As long as you can see the sky, you can send messages on this Zolio device. We've talked about the magic of the Zolio, and this is the kind of situation I'm in where if this train broke down out here, God forbid... I would have no means of contacting anyone unless I had a sweet Azolio device. So it's less commitment than going the full satellite phone rig. Um, it's a lot cheaper, it's a lot smaller and lighter. It's a little sort of credit card size thing. It weighs 150 grams and you get that little box. It's got a 200 hour battery life and it can connect you to a satellite wherever you are in the world. So that can be useful if you're someone traveling far away from cities like I'm doing at the moment or if you're out in the wilderness in, in the wild somewhere. It can be useful if you live just on the edge of mobile range where you dip in and out of range all the time. 
or it can be useful for traveling overseas because if you find yourself going from country to country and not wanting to have to keep getting new sim cards and all the rest of it or, or paying global roaming then you can have this device and it can let you message whoever you want around the world uh, once you've got it you can send whatever messages you like and it's also got an sos function so if you find yourself lost in the middle of nowhere you hit the sos it will send your exact gps coordinates to a help team who will make sure that someone comes out and saves your life in the wilderness so these are the things you can do zolio z-o-l-e-o.com it's a pretty much waterproof it's extremely dust resistant it's a rugged little piece of equipment and you can carry it with you and be in contact wherever you would like to be around the world and if i had one right now i'd be able to message adam to tell him that i've recorded this bit of the show on my own because that's what i had to do when the networks went down from the train from the xpt from melbourne to sydney you can hear it squeaking and rattling and rolling in the background uh, and you can hear mark nicholas doing similar things very soon hi i'm ian chapel you're listening to the final word with adam collins and jeff lemon To begin, we wanted to go back to really your memories as a kid of growing up in, in England and, and the BBC being the, the only um, television coverage that there was, well, a little bit on ITV, but mostly, overwhelmingly, the BBC and um, your memories of, of what cricket on the television looked like and, and sounded like um, when it was being helmed by the BBC when you were growing up. Well, we had a... There was a lot of variety because uh, the, uh, the commentators... Um, sort of chopped and changed a bit. John Arlott always did the Sunday League, which was great because the thing about John, both both on radio and TV, and you find a lot of guys are different on radio and TV. He wasn't really. You always got his emotional attachment to the game. And I think that was the most attractive part of his commentary. It, obviously, his... Um, his his words were great. His um, his appreciation of the difficulty of the game uh, was attractive in that he took nothing for granted. But I think that emotional attachment drew you in with him, and it wasn't so much that he salivated about players or cricket, because he, there was nothing sort of melodramatic about him. It, it, it was just that he truly loved the game and the people who played it and he respected them for their ability and he respected the game for its many charms and and and, and I've always felt that that he Richie is always set out there as the great example for for good reason but I always felt that John characterized cricket perhaps best of all um, from the layman's point of view which is very important and one of the reasons why radio commentary is, continues to be so relevant because it's it's not just the professional's point of view it's the layman's point of view and John was very good at that so John on Sundays there was a bit of Jack Bannister going around a bit of CMJ a bit of Peter Walker um, uh, Peter was pretty solid very good bloke and, and understood cricket of course so well I suppose we were all taken by Richie right from the off on TV. Uh, he he had such knowledge. If, if he said it, he, that's an amazing gift, isn't it? If he says it, it must be right. And I'm not sure anybody else, not even, who would be the nearest to that 
uh, you could argue that uh, um, Mike Atherton has got close to it. You, you probably think it of Ian Chapel. There aren't many. I mean, you know, Jeffrey has that in him, but of course he compromises himself with with the other approaches to theatre, which is no bad thing for the for the art of commentary on the game. But if we're talking about somebody who who just was right and could crystallise it in so few words. I think Richie probably was the master of that. CMJ was was a, a good, um, solid tradesman. Um, and then all the, there were a lot of people who dipped in and out. There was a bit of Ted Dexter and a bit of Tom Graveney. Um, uh, uh, Tony Lewis came to present after Peter West. And I think we sort of took what we were given. You know, you didn't have this global affectation with it now and people you know rating people and voting for people it's so subjective it's almost impossible to name who the best are because you have your favorites uh, by definition in the same way as we appreciate music um and some of us like reggae and others don't some of us like rock and roll and others like rap i mean that is just the nature of the beast and that's the case with particularly cricket commentary because it takes so long you know you're 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 in someone's home you're a guest in someone's home as richie used to say so for goodness sake don't irritate them for a whole day and and so you you better not irritate them and you're sure going to be subjective in your judgment of them um, and I grew up watching every ball you know my my routine from the minute I understood cricket so we're talking you know six or seven my routine was to watch the play in the hours of play and that's all I did so lunch had to be served at one I think it was 1 30 then I think actually it was 11 30 to 1 30 so mum had to have lunch ready at 1 30 and we started again at 10 past two and tea had to be at 10 past four and started again at half past four and then at the close of play I would replace Jim Swanton and do the summary to my mum or dad if he came home from work you know and that was what happened I'm not saying this was a negotiable thing that is what happened in the summer holidays or weekends in the school term time um, that's what happened it was black and white it was often slow it was often Edrich or Boycott or Laurie or Simpson um, and believe it or not even Basil Butcher and Conrad Hunt didn't seem as glamorous as you know Greenwich and Haynes were later um, Sobers yes um, he certainly could make a day seem like there was colour coverage um, but we didn't get colour at home until 1973 so I saw a lot of uh, black and white cricket and and you know as fred truman always said you know the bowling looks so much lower in black and white uh, can i ask because my, my recollection i guess of cricket would be uh on the tv from 76 by which stage john has already stopped being on the bbc and there appeared to be as you alluded to a very um uh, consistent but quite almost low-key presentation there'd be one commentator at a time it felt to me it'd be jim laker or Richie Benno, or some of the others you've mentioned. Do you recall the tone of BBC commentary while Jonas was on? Because he seems like quite a, uh, a very different no, character. No, Dan. Dan, it's interesting. It's a good question. I don't recall much of Jonas on TV. I recall Jonas' summaries. I don't... I mean, I recall Jonas doing doing summaries. I've looked at footage and I hear Jonas's voice doing these um, sort of highlights of a day's play. Um, 63 at Lords is Jonas. 
but I don't remember Jonas's commentary on TV ever. Um, I, 76 is a very interesting one. I watched a lot of that summer and uh, they always had a summarizer. Um, uh, Jim Laker and Richie Benno uh, led and they always had a bit of Dexter or Graveney. Peter West was um, still hosting. Uh, I don't think there was any Jack Bannister. I don't think Raymond Illingworth had started because he was probably still playing, or well, he was still playing in 76. So they had summarizers. I only remember, as I say, oh, and Compo. Dennis Compton, Ted Dexter, Tom Graveney were the summarizers. Richie and Jim were lead, and it's possible that Richie and Jim just alternated. Um, they bought John Snow back, uh, and he was past it, and it was a mistake. Um, they should have taken him to Australia in 74-5 and then you could see in the summer of 75 he'd lost pace and in the summer of 76 it was so dry and there was no uh, moisture in the surfaces snowball was was you know below the the standard um, uh, very difficult for somebody like John Snow to, to be subpar if you're bowling at Greenwich and Richards and Lloyd um, and he dropped he bowled a bouncer at Viv and Viv, Viv sort of pulled it off the front foot and it just went like a shell, you know. And uh, and Lager said, not really a bouncer from Jon Snow, more of a long hop. And suffice to say, Viv Richards simply crucified it. <laughs> glorious. Great. Or glorious. Great. Right. So I don't remember Jonas. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. I remember, I remember Swanton's uh, daily summaries, um, which were thorough but not thrilling. Uh, and, and, I, and I remember... I remember the odd Australian uh, guest, but you know, it's, to be honest, it's Arlett Benno, um, Johnson on radio, obviously, uh, Truman and Bailey on radio. It, I, I'm very interested too uh, by you guys like Rex Alston and Alan McGilvray and early Arlett, because um, if I, I listen to one of your clips uh, um, from one of your previous shows, and I thought to myself, you know, you could drop that into the Marshall even, you could drop that into today's uh, radio commentary, Dan, in your box. And honestly, uh, other than, I suppose, observation about the development of cricket grounds and the technology that the players are either wearing or playing with, you know, how the umpires look, you, you could use the commentary to get constant proof, I think, with cricket. Um, uh, plus Sachin's, plus Salamem shows, you know. Cricket always changes, but cricket stays the same. Yeah, it's actually, uh, Peter Baxter had a similar observation with Marshall, didn't he? He said to us that as a commentator, he was, of those early commentators, he felt that he was, wouldn't have been remotely out of place today. Oh, well, I agree with him. Yeah, I, I, that, I think he's spot on. I, I, that shows you that Firstly, there's a skill that is is constantly required, a level, um, and it and it can sit in any era of the game. Um, and second, and secondly, that the game hasn't changed much. You were you were consuming. You told us your cricket mostly off the TV, but you know you'll have had to go on holiday and you'll have had to be in places without a TV. Oh, we listen to right. the radio so, a lot. Um, could you can you sort of describe the development of TV commentary? And, and how it was stylistically different from radio commentary. Was it, was it very quickly different? By which I mean, 
you know, if you put a... The, people started on the radio, so that, that was uh, what they were used to doing to describe what happened. Did people get the idea that TV commentary had to be done differently from radio immediately? Well, there, there were a number of things that happened. Um, the, the first was that when Channel 9, when Kerry Packer got the rights in Australia, he wanted uh, an energy, constant energy, um, and David Hill, who was producing, and you know, but the, the guys who worked with, I didn't work with Hilly, but the guys who worked with him say he was the best. Um, but I think, oddly enough, I, I think you're often the best if you're the first, and as long as you're good. Um, I think one of the reasons that no cricket commentary team has been able to match the original Channel 9 4, um, uh, Benno, Laurie, Chappell and Greg, with a bit of support from Greg Chappell uh, and Keith Stackpole, um, Frank Tyson occasionally, Fred Truman occasionally, um, is, is that they were there first. And, you know, it, it, it's just everything is compared back to them and considered not the same, a bit like the Beatles and the Stones. Honestly, in the world of popular contemporary rock music, has anybody been better? Can we honestly say anybody's been better than the Beatles and the Stones? And part of the reasons is they were doing it first. Um, so uh, I, I think that nine, you know, you had constant talking from Laurie and Greg. And that prompted Sky, when they got the rights, to try to track that Channel 9 journey. They even hired Tony Gregg. Um, and the, the advent of satellite television, the advent of a commercial um, network bringing the game to air, those things meant that the game suddenly became... Um, the, the, somebody else's property in a way and they they ramped it up I mean I remember being on air in the early days with Sky and being asked if anybody was up there because I you know I hadn't said anything for two balls well Richie sometimes didn't say anything for an over there's a, a famous which we've I've heard a famous over in, in Australia where um, you know at the end of every over because the ad breaks you you throw to the score and that takes you to the break and, and Richie commentates Rahul over without saying a word because he doesn't and at, at the end of six balls he says and it's still 91 for two so he's not said nobody's said a word Rahul over because you just watch the play they, they had they had great audio so you got the Atmos you know it was, it was cool um, but definitely uh, uh, the minute that happened and, and we went around the world to you know we got to places like India um, people wanted more noise and there was a tendency, one or two people got fired because all they could do was provide noise. Other people who, who didn't really have a great in-depth knowledge um, but, but could wish her away about the game were encouraged to do so. And then those with in-depth in -depth knowledge were encouraged to use more stats, more analytics and apply them. And, that's, and that has sort of increased almost exponentially now to the, to the point at which in, if you work for Indian TV you, you have to work off a lot of graphics with a lot of stats because all they want if you don't say anything for a whole ball you will have a producer in your ear saying that it, we don't do silence we know you came out of the Benno school we don't do silence we want constant 
comment and that's what our audience wants and so i think i would say it it it, it was commercial television satellite television uh, nine's example and when the bbc lost the rights and channel four got them in this country in 1999 we didn't get our commentary team right first um and and we had one or two people who, who we were trying who weren't quite good enough um and it was only when we you know channel four is is quite rightly remembered you know, very fondly for, for being very exciting um, and very good. But I would say the commentary team was only very good in the last, uh, out of seven years, probably the, the last three or four. Maybe may give us four, but probably three. So um, it, uh, we, we, even I managed to get the balance. I've had periods where I got very hyper. I, I wouldn't say I necessarily... I talk too much in terms of length, but I would say that I talk too much in terms of waffle and and hype because we were we were trying to give it an energy that the BBC hadn't had, um, and that was what was wanted. They, Channel Four did the research; they didn't want the game to become absurd through commentary, but they did want it to have an energy. We studied the times of day that people were listening. So, um, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon would be very different from 5.30 in the evening. So you'd have a little more fun. You'd be uh, less analytical. You'd highlight, you'd almost put a bubble up and highlight something. You'd explain some, something very, very simple. Um, you know, you'd explain LBW more clearly if there was an appeal. Whereas by 5.30, you'd throw in uh, more look, look back, at, uh, more looks back at, at the day's play, uh, more replays of wickets, and definitely more detailed uh, summary of what had gone on. In the mornings, you could have quite quite quiet periods as play warmed up and you'd ease off and it, it was that was when I learned ebb and flow I learned that if you are always up there uh, you'll never get up there so better to be down here and able to climb that mountain and drop down again with the flow with the flow of the play and able to change what you're talking about depending on who's listening at what time that's fascinating that you would tailor the way you did it to the imagined audience do you see the future i mean that the hundred has been set up to try and garner women and children families do you see therefore stylistically that a competition like that will sound very different on tv from say the saturday of a test match which you would have done knowing that you had your sort of core cricket loving audience sat down plonked in front of the tv at 11 o'clock in the morning you know, you, you can't turn the 100 into something it isn't. If it's a cracking match and every ball is flying to the boundary, like literally every ball is flying to the boundary or is a wicket, or, or at least, you know, the, the, the great sort of phrase right now is every ball is an event. That's what people use for T2020. Well, that's fine, but it better be a good event for you to be up high because you've got no chance if you have acquired two balls, you know, so so that will be the skill. The, the, the interesting, uh, the most interesting change by a commentator that I've noticed, because of course I, I don't hear him much, mm. because I've been in other commentary boxes next door, is Michael Atherton, who is hu highly intelligent, clearly um, as in love with the game as, as anybody, has a great knowledge of it, but he has really learnt to adapt to the mo moment and we hear highs now and the reason I this dawned on me was during this last World Cup having worked with him f f you know, five years ago in Australia 
there was a difference. And in this last World Cup, I noticed Athos really excited about wickets or amazing shots, like he hadn't been before. He'd always been, you know, almost too cool for school at times. And that had led him not, not quite monotone or flat, but certainly more one-dimensional than his ability needed to have been. And now he's really taken on this, this ability to react to the moment with excitement because you know he's he, he, with him he's not putting it on. He is excited. And then he'll go back down to that lovely, uh, more intellectual level of his. So he'll have to do that for the 100 just a bit quicker, a bit sharper, but he mustn't lose it because the, 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 the cricket commentary that destroys matches, if I watch from a around the world is the cricket commentary that's one-dimensional and almost always at the moment it's one-dimensional on that hyper high rather than on that reflective low and and you need a bit of both it was one of the reasons that um you know everybody in australia with nine you know that a lot was made of the tony Gregg um bill laurie partnership because they had a friendship and an interaction but actually tony Gregg with ian chapel was really good that there, you could always sense that little bit of edge, but they were two very different levels. Greggy was generally high, but could also talk the techniques of the game. Ciappelli was generally more reflective, but if something extraordinary happened, even he would just lift his voice a second and then he would quickly think, no, that's not how I do it. And he'd go, you know, um, he'd go, go back to, to, to that sort of flatter thing. So the 100 shouldn't be... Cricket is only a microcosm of itself. So, you know, you just have to have the intelligence and the ability to fit into the thing you're observing. Mark, moving to the winter of 1989-90, and that's significant on a couple of levels. So England going to the West Indies and the broadcast has been taken into the UK for the first time for the whole winter and it's been done so on B Sky B, a, a subscription service rather than free-to-air television. Uh, how important was that that uh, cricket fans were able to watch the England team throughout the year? Uh, and also in terms of style, how did it differ on B Sky B compared to what people were used to watching the BBC? There are many people at Sky at the time, including Sam Chisholm, who bought the Premier League rights, who felt that cricket had done every bit as big a job for Sky as football had. And the reason that the, the line they used was that, that Sky Cricket won us Middle England. They didn't quite say Middle England, they actually said won us Surrey, which is very interesting. So for the first time, Surrey or Middle England could, could turn on um, cricket in the winter and the beauty of the Caribbean is the hours you can watch you, you watch in the evening so you finish work you go and you can sit there and you watch a whole day's play I mean it's, it was magical and you saw that white light and, and those th those thrilling sequences with the crowds and actually some phenomenal cricket because England played out of their boots against the odds against the good West Indies side and very nearly pulled off a great win so that got people very enthused about watching cricket in the winter so I think one did see you know, by definition if the cricket's always in the sunshine and the light's very bright uh, and and it's competitive it, it becomes a, a much more uh, interactive experience than if you're just flopped out at three o'clock in the afternoon watching in black and white you know and and edrich is 72 not out mm. i mentioned him twice now he's a very good man and a very <laughs> very good player so no disrespect to john we certainly tried to lift the level a bit there were accusations that the bbc was um chugging along really rather than trying 
change the way people perceive the game. So I would think we appealed to younger people a little more. We certainly had more cameras, so we gave more angles. We embraced some new technology, so there was more to talk about. One of the reasons that all cricket commentators, bar two now, are ex-players is that you really have to know a lot about the game inside the ropes because of the modern technology. If you're caught out by that, by not knowing, it, it can make you look foolish. The technology exposes aspects of the game that you almost have to have played to understand. And I think that is what has pushed out, not that there were ever many, but pushed out non-former players, um, which is a pity. I don't remember anything seismic. I remember us thinking, we can do this livelier and better. Um, we can add things to this that have never been added before. We can use slow-mos differently. And we can ramp up the audio. And yes, we can give the audience uh, uh, more of an insight, more information than they've had before. I don't remember anything more than that. Did you get a sense at all, Mark, that the BBC were uh, surprised, complacent, towards the, the back end? I'm, I'm talking sort of 94 to 98, and then when Channel 4 got the rights... You mentioned there the BBC, there was a perception of them chugging along. Did it come as an incredible shock to them that they didn't have the rights, that they lost the rights? Well, the BBC had been taken some uh, some quite enterprising new ideas and not shown any, shown any interest in them. And the reason I know that is because we then received them uh, at Channel, you know, Channel Four Cricket when we got the rights, and people said, "Well, I, you know, somebody said, well, I actually took this one to the BBC you know, four years ago." They, they were more than surprised. I, I think they were pretty shocked. I, I know that their pitch, complacency is a bit unfair. I don't think the people running BBC Creek were complacent, but I think, I think their pitch was a bit lazy. I think that assumption is the mother of all, you know what. And, and um, I think they made the assumption that they'd had it from the beginning and they'd continue to, to have it. And, and when they didn't get it, uh, I think they then looked back and thought, "Poor, we 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 lost, you know, we lost sight of the ball." I I don't imagine that the powers that be, i.e., outside of sport, so the hierarchy, uh, the BBC cared very much at the, at, at the time. You know, it was only when they Channel Four suddenly got very good reviews and then won awards. Uh, we won a, the first BAFTA, I think, in two thousand and one. Then they must have thought, oh, we've made a mess of this. You know, it was still on the radio. Uh, England were a terrible side. I suppose that, you know, the director general and, and um, a couple of the board, I bet they didn't at that moment think it was seismic or certainly not cataclysmic. Uh, uh, and I'll bet two years later they thought we've, we've got this completely wrong. Mark, can you just take us through the, the delisting process, as you recall it, where international cricket came off terrestrial television as a consequence of a government decision? What happened was Vic Wakeling, who was running Sky Sport, asked me and Bob Willis to prepare um, for him a, a future programme of scheduling for Sky Cricket on the basis that we won rights to one-day internationals, one-day domestic cricket, and test match highlights. So 
we did that and we took it to uh, Ian McLaurin, Lord McLaurin, who, who was running the board. We both knew him uh, a little bit personally, so we could just pick up the phone and arrange a meeting. And uh, he said it, it looked a perfect plan. Um, but anyway, he'd like to get cricket delisted because it would make it a more competitive um, marketplace. And then the board would get the money for the rights that they deserve because the BBC had always gotten far too cheap. And that worked because, of course, Channel 4 had to pay a lot more. Our plan worked, so we got what we wanted, which was a soap opera of one-day uh, internationals, uh, you know, not spread out over the year, more than just the three at the start of a summer and all of that kind of thing. Um, we got the test match highlights as we wanted. We got one test match live that, that we put in there as a bit of a punt, and Vic was thrilled with that. Uh, and Channel 4 had the highlights for that. Uh, and then, of course, I suddenly found myself eight months later on the other side of the fence <laughs> working for Channel 9, not for Sky. Uh, the corollary of all of that was that, that down the track, it being delisted, Sky could then throw a lot of mon money at it. And that's when we were, Channel 4, were just blown out of the water um, by the bidding and lost the rights at the end of the summer of 2005. I'm not saying that cricket wouldn't have ended up delisted anyway. It might well have done. But I've always had a giggle about the fact that I was involved in the slitting of my own throat to some to some small degree. <laughs> Channel 4, I'm, I mean, I remember as a, as a young man, I'd have been, uh, I don't know, 30. I'd been so used to everything being BBC. And Channel 4 didn't initially strike me as the obvious fit. I mean, I ended up being delighted by the coverage of it. Can you recall, because you would have been part of that whole process then, what was going through Channel 4 bosses' minds? They must have thought that there was money to be made out of this. One of my favourite moments was leaving, leaving the second meeting I had um, with the chief executive, um, the head of marketing, the head of finance. There was no head of sport and the director of programmes. Oh, and, and the key man, actually, David Brooke, who was directory, director of strategy and development. And he, he had driven, um, he adored cricket and had driven um, the pitch, which was very good. Uh, and the attention to detail in the, in the proposals for editorial uh, which brought shows like the Saturday morning masterclasses and, and the long lunchtime fills and the interviews and the um, jargon busting and all those kind of things. And uh, uh, in the second meeting when I agreed the, the, my, my deal, uh, Michael Jackson, who was the chief executive, got up to go because he had another meeting to go to. And as he walked, I said, Michael, before you go, what about dress? And he turned around and he smiled. Don't mind, he said, but no ties. And it was the first moment I thought, right, that's interesting. And I said, T-shirts? And he said, I don't mind, but no ties. And he kept going. And I actually presented the highlights of the Edgbaston test in 1999, the test that we had the highlights of, not the live coverage sort of a bit Don Johnson-y, really, in, with a grey suit jacket and a white T-shirt, which I regret because that, that, that was sort of unnecessary. Mm. But what I was trying to say, I, I know that, you know, I've fairly, fairly probably over the years had a bit of stick. 
either for being a bit of a poser or for whatever it may be. What I was trying to say was this game isn't the property of any privileged class. This This game isn't the property of the ruling class. This game isn't the property of any establishment class. Um, This game isn't the property of any institutional class. This game is everybody's property. And to bring it to television, uh, to watch it, to play it, I want to be in your homes as you are at home. So if you're at home wearing a T-shirt, why shouldn't I wear a T-shirt? But actually, that leaves you too susceptible then to not getting dressed right because uh, in the end, I worked out you could just as easily do it with an open neck shirt and a jacket, and that's what I did more often than not. Though, funny enough, I went very quickly back to wearing a tie for test matches. I don't know why. I, I, I thought, you know, deep, deeply rooted within me is a respect for the game. And I felt that showed a respect for the game, and I don't really know why, but I just did. I find this fascinating, Mark, because I, I totally understand all of your instincts. They all, all of them, absolutely make sense to me. Yeah, I, but in part, is that is that because of the we'd been uh, we only knew coverage because it was BBC coverage. So you're sort of talking about a, a friction between recognizing that what's been happening is not growing the game, and yet at the same time very much aware that the game has a, a, a respect that needs to be given to it which is sort of reflected a little bit by what the BBC would do so getting that balance is devilishly difficult isn't it when the only thing you've been used to is one type of coverage yeah well we very very much so I mean you know what you did in some ways but was perhaps more revolutionary than what anybody did probably not than what Channel 9 did back in uh, 1979-80 but, but uh, I suppose us with Channel 4 and, and you in your way, though much more underground than, than us, was saying, you know, it's difficult, isn't it? If, if you're, I just have my voice. I, I don't, I ended up at a private school because my godfather offered to pay. My father had died. We didn't have any money. Um, but I ended up at Bradfield because my godfather was prepared for, and this is my voice. And it, you know, some people call it posh. Others say it reflects, you know, public school England and all that sort of thing. And that, more than anything, drives me nuts because I find this constant idea of elitism attached to cricket unbearable. Cricket was the property, yes, certainly of of feudal lords, but it was also the property of the mining communities. And that's where the, the Fred Trumans and the Harold Larwoods and the industrial communities in this country came from. And, and, and when you look at the Australians that first played the game and established their backgrounds and, and their dirty hands from their work, I would wager that more cricketers have come from less privileged backgrounds than from more privileged backgrounds over the great history of the game. That would be the case in the Caribbean as well. I don't know. I'd have to study India a bit more closely. And I think it's annoying that, you know, I was trying to get that message across every day on Channel 4's coverage of the game. And without actually standing and shouting from the rooftops about it, that you know, if you ask me to crystallise what we were most trying to achieve, there's a lot of ease there. There's educate, enthuse, entertain, but get rid of elitism was was one for me. And that's why I threw myself into Chance to Shine and, and still throw myself into it 
today because it does cricket no service to say it's elitist and it, it's for everybody and it's the property of everybody. I One of the things I hated about the 100 were people saying, you know, um, we don't need another format. Why? Why? Whoever said we needed to have um, defined formats? We All of us have played cricket on beaches, in streets, in yards, in, in parks, in fields, and we've played different forms of the game. Sometimes we've only had 20 minutes to play, so we've worked out a game where, you know, there's only four of you and you bat for seven minutes each or you face a certain amount of balls each. Cricket's incredibly adaptable. It's always reacted to its place in the world at that time, and it will always do so. And there's no reason why a 100-ball competition won't bring cricket as thrilling as T20. There's no reason why... You know, why should a team have 11 players in it? Why shouldn't a team have eight players in it, for example? Why should you only? Why not six and only lose five wickets and have some specialist fielders out there? You know, there's lots of ways to play cricket, and I hate the fact that people only see it as one thing for the for the more pri- privileged few. Mark, to jump over to Australia just for a bit. So Daniel talks about growing up and watching cricket on the television in the 70s over here. For me, it's I've grew up in Melbourne in the 90s, so I've got a, a you know, different. Uh, perspective on this but one that was very powerful powerfully driven by the, the four names you, you mentioned before and I think in many respects that perhaps the the greatest compliment of Benno was that I don't think everyone necessarily knew he even played the game in that he was such a powerful broadcaster that that um that people knew him as that almost first rather than being the, sort of the great Australian captain and all-rounder but can you give a bit of a flavour for um the iconic nature of that commentary box that you were stepping into the big four names but how they cut through far beyond that i'm thinking the 12th man billy birmingham tapes for example and and so on and how they had this cultural relevance that was that was so profound for so many young australians who are falling in love with the game well i'll give you i'll give you some idea of how i felt by telling you about 1996 in jaipur uh, it, during the World Cup, that was my first big gig, and I only did six games, I think, in the whole tournament. But that's okay. I was there writing for the Telegraph, and my first game was um, West Indies Australia in Jaipur, and the commentary team was Ben O'Greg, Chapel, Holding, Gavaskar, Nicholas. In 1996. So I turn up and I, I couldn't walk in. So I go to the press box and I lay out my stuff because I used to write longhand. I didn't have a typewriter and I used to write longhand and file copy down the phone to copy takers who frequently spelt Jasurira wrong. Um, and, um, and I was loitering. And we were getting kind of near to the toss. It must have been 15 minutes before the toss. And I thought, you've got to, you've got to. And Peter Robert walked past. Hello, Mark. Oh, hi, Peter. What are you loitering for? I said, well, I, I just, you know. Um, he said, what are you working on? I said, oh, no, I'm here doing, doing some writing. And, and actually, I'm done. Weird as it may sound to you, I'm also doing TV for this game. Well, get in there then. He was a bit like that, Peter. He was bloody bossy. And he just pushed the door open and he kind of pushed me in. And they were all in there, you know, they just had a production meeting. <laughs> I was just fucked up. I was, 
oh my god what do I do and Richie was very nice because I'd actually done a couple of games for the BBC when Hampshire had been knocked out of the cup We'd, I did a semi-final and a final I think uh, day, Mac. Um, hello mate hey, great to see you Tony Greg I knew Greggy a bit and Chapelli said Marcus and Mikey said Marcus and Sonny said uh, Mikey they all called me something different and I thought, oh, well, this isn't so bad then. And I looked at the list, commentary, roster, and second stint was Nicholas on the left, lead, Benno on the right, summariser. So I took the producer, Graham Coos, who was the Channel 9, I said, Graham, um, we haven't met, but uh, it's, um, it's not for me to... But I, he must probably got those the wrong way around. He said, no, nah, mate, he's the expert, he can summarise, you just call it. And I went, oh, God, all right, OK, I'll call it with Benno. Can you imagine? <laughs> Christ, fuck, I mean, <laughs> oh, God. And, and, of course, you come on, and actually it was very clever, very clever of him, because if you come on with Benno as the lead, as Slats did in England in 2000, you can go 15, 20 minutes without saying anything because you don't, you quickly realise you aren't going to better anything he's already said and you worry that if he hasn't said it it's not worth saying so by getting me to lead I had to talk I had to get into the game and and it was I hadn't you know I was that nervous I mean I'm talking sweat pouring nervous so when I was asked to do um, 2003 the first test of the India I was in in Australia for the Rugby World Cup and I was rung up by the guy running Channel 9, then young, he was a young guy at the time, in his mid-30s, David Gingell, um, and, and um, late 30s perhaps, and I was asking to go and meet him, and I went in, and I, he said, I heard you'd like to work in Australia. I said, I love Australia, I love Sydney. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's happening with Richie, I've heard he's retiring, uh, blimey. Uh, he said, what are you doing next week? I said, well, I'm actually flying to England. I, I, the world, I came for the Rugby World Cup. No, where was I flying to? Anyway, um, and he said, stay and uh, work with us on the test. I said, okay. Right, <laughs> so I cancelled everything. And I couldn't, we were staying at the Stamford in Brisbane and I couldn't sleep at all. Kirsten flew out to join me. Uh, I mean, the levels of anxiety were extreme. And then would you believe it, it rained the whole day first day of the Brisbane test against India and we didn't so I just hung around the commentary box which again was an extraordinary bit of luck because I didn't have to perform and I was able to sort of say hello to everybody I mean Taylor and Ely looked at me what's he do? what are you doing here you know what's he there I, I was being given a blazer and a tie I had a channel nine you know da, 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 da. there it was the floodlights you know um, so I was able to sort of meet everybody and have a day chewing the cud and we didn't start, I, I think it was the next day, it might have been later that day, whatever it was so that helped, but I do remember Tony Gregg saying uh, uh, welcome back uh, you know, 71 for one here with uh, Michael Slater I'm uh, in the commentary box now, Richie Benno and Mark Nicholas, that was all he said and on I went and I thought there is next to nobody in Australia who has a clue what's going on here. <laughs> they will never have heard of me. You better be you better be half good boy. And I just concentrated like I've never concentrated. And I didn't try anything flash. I just 
analysed a couple of things because I've thankfully got a bit of cricket knowledge and I made a few comments about the Gabba and I really didn't say much else. And as the day went on, I sort of expanded a bit, but I certainly never got flowery. I stuck to the absolute basic premise of watching the game fiercely and picking out anything I thought was a little bit different. I didn't say a thing that was obvious, you know, I never said, I can't bear it when people, you know, that's gone to third man for a single, yeah, right, we can, we can see that. Um, so I, I, it was terrifying, uh, terrifying. And I did the game and sort of got away with it. I think I got one bit of luck. I, I called something right, you know, I said he should, it would be cleverer here to bowl over the wicket. I think it was Cumble to Gilchrist. And I said, he's giving him, if he bowls around the wicket, he, he's got too many levers with his arms and he can hit him both sides. If he came over the wicket and bowled tight at middle and leg, it'd be much harder for him to play that slog sweep. It, 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 and actually, it'll probably force an error. Uh, one might not get a wicket. And sure enough, he had a wind up and it, he was bowling. And so people thought, this boy knows what he's talking about. Um, so I got lucky, really. And so I did that match. And then I got rang by David, rung by David Gingell again. And he said, OK, stay for another. And Kerry's flying back from LA to listen to you for the weekend. So that was real pressure. And come the third one, which was the Boxing Day test, having said goodbye to all the guys and booked flights back to England because I hadn't heard anything from anybody at nine, I think it had a call from Gingell saying, Kerry gave you a tick. Stay for, Mel stay for Melbourne. <laughs> so I then stayed for Christmas. And I walked into the commentary box on, and everybody's doing their greetings and happy Christmas and compliments of the season. And Bill's always in his seat, you know, an hour and a half, two hours before play. Bill's in his seat, down in the little... You have to go down the steps in Melbourne into your seat. And he looked up and he shook my hand. He said, G'day, Mark. You're not having my job, however hard you try. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it all started. And then... And then they got me doing, um, I had to go down at the end of the morning session and do two minutes straight to camera about the morning session. So the commentator on air at the time would throw, now we go down to Mark Nicholas pitch side and I would stare down the barrel and do a two minute summary of the morning. And I guess that, that was their way of testing how I interacted with the camera. And then the following uh, summer, they got me to do some presenting and the summer after that, I was the presenter, I mean, there you go. Your your time at Channel Four, it felt very strongly to me as a watcher that you were uh, you were almost an auteur of that program and that coverage. I've, I felt your um, your association with it hugely strongly. So when you go and work in another broadcasting organisation, how do you adapt to that? Because in one place you're effectively calling the shots, and, and then the the next one, you know. You're a junior in a massive behemoth. Um, you're right about four. And one of the things that when I, I told you about the, those boardroom meetings right at the beginning when I, I was signing for four, one of the things they wanted was um, me to be strongly involved in the editorial and go with it. I mean, I, I were, we had such a great producer, Gary Francis, that he was so easy to work with and we got on very well, which was great. So the two of us put our all our add-on shows together, you know, the, the mornings, the lunches, the masterclasses, the teas, the close of plays ideas. I got, again, a strange series of events changed everything, Dan. Uh, what happened was I got fired after two summers. Gingell left Channel 9 
Kerry Packer appointed a guy called Linton Taylor who used to take a chainsaw to the place every now and then when Kerry decided that he needed a clean up or a cut back or a haircut as they used to call it and he'd come in and fire people left, right and centre um, lessen the overheads change the office around a bit and Channel 9 would just reboot and I got fired I was um, playing golf uh, and uh, there was a call on my phone up a fairway and I took it which I'd never do on a golf course but I, I suppose I had a sixth sense and it was a head of sport saying sorry it's all gone pear shape you're out which <laughs> deeply disappointing and then six weeks later I got a call from the same guy Gary Fenton was his name saying we've got these matches uh, at the ICC rest of the world 11 against Australia we'd like you to come and host them so I said, Gary, that's quite a reversal from thanks but no thanks to come and host our coverage. He said, well, you're just going to have to trust me. It's a three-week trip. Book your flights from this date to this date. Bill them to me. So over I went and I hosted those matches. And I was flying back to England. It was a Thursday afternoon and my phone rang and it was Sam Chisholm who had run um, a Sky for years and was now backed by Packer. Linton Taylor had gone. Packer had brought him back after Gingell to rework Channel 9 into the business that it had been, which didn't quite work, actually. It was trying to take it back to an age that didn't exist. But anyway, Sam was there, and that was my good luck. Because in a board meeting, apparently, Kerry had a real dig at the cricket. So the coverage is lost. You know, we're not. He said, these Channel 4 people are doing it better than us. And we were the number one. What's happened? What about that kid we had from four? What happened to him? And Sam said, well, your man fired him. And he said, he did what? He said, your man fired him. He said, well, get him back and get him to make it like Channel 4. So Sam, and Sam told me this. I'm not, this isn't, there's no invention. There's no um, question marks here. So I went and met Sam Chisholm. He did a great four-year deal. uh, And he said, I want you to, grab hold of it we're going to give you a different producer and we want it and we want it taken outside into the sunshine we want all the add-ons and the interviews and the live tosses and the um we want the thing to move like channel 4 Cr- cricket does so it was then up to the new producer to speak to particularly taylor and healy who'd come you know they'd started a bit before me and were like why is nicholas suddenly pushing people around very understandable two outstanding men straight as as you'll ever meet and fun and know the game backwards and they were the last people I wanted to upset Greggy was fine about it Richie was up for it Giappelli's always been a huge supporter um, and so off we went um, and I didn't boss people around all I did was meet with the producer before the match begun and plot out how we could you know do the mornings and the lunches and the teas and, and that's how we almost uh, subliminally to some degree began to change it so that's a long answer to your question but it's the only answer really I just want to pick up on one point on the back of that Mark about the iconic status of Richie Benno especially I mean it, it was almost um, before memes were memes that the captain of the, the, the captain of the commentary team you know the 12th man stuff with Richie and he really did sort of live in that space and, and suddenly you were the guy hosting the show not Richie Benno I mean how did it feel 
to you, uh, reflecting on that 96 experience 10 years earlier and reflecting on, you know, the, the, the standing that you, you held Richie in and everyone did, um, that you were suddenly like a very senior dog in, in, a, in a very well, uh, well-known pack. I don't know what to say, Adam. I, I think I went with it bravely. I'd say that for myself. Uh, you know, there were front page headlines about me. The Australian ran a headline because because they ran a roster, um, because they weren't employing eight commentators on air in a three-man situation. They ran a roster to reduce it to seven a day, and Chapel wasn't doing Adelaide. Chapelli wasn't doing Adelaide, and the Australian ran a front page headline saying Nicholas, you know, ousting Archipelli and and then some of the tabloids dived in and say, you know, what have we got this bloke here for? Why do we need this bloke? Freaking palm, posh palm. So I, I, um, I had one thing on my side always that I could reflect on in moments of not depression, but concern, certainly. Um, edginess, uh, lack of confidence, insecurity, all those things floated around. And that was that Richie back me to the hilt and nobody has ever found this out from me I've never heard it but I can't believe that Kerry and Sam didn't do what they did without first going to him because uh, he was you know he was the man I mean they went to him for World Series cricket they sure would have gone to him about me I can tell you that so I and he used to I used to just go to him and say what do you think he'd say going great just terrific or he'd say yeah I don't know about that uh, touching of the pitch or, you know, whatever. He, but he was always with me, as was Daphne. He'd just get a little line after a test, great job, or he'd go out for dinner to that Lucio's in Paddington, raise a glass, another terrific week's work. He never was any more gushing than that, but he did do that, and therefore he was my ally. And when Richie is my ally, I thought I could dodge most bullets. Thanks for listening to part one of our interview with Mark Nicholas for calling the shots with Daniel Norcross and myself. We'll be back with the second half of that chat over the weekend. As I mentioned at the start of the show today, there's no calling the shots on Friday. So we'll have the second half of Mark where we would normally have an encore edition as we have throughout the course of this isolation and lockdown period through coronavirus. So you'll be able to hear Mark talk about um, the 2005 Ashes, some of the memorable moments that he called through there, the end of Richie Benno's illustrious calling career in England and Australia what um, Mark was able to do with Channel 9 for many years after he finished with Channel 4 as well. It's a, it's a really interesting part of Mark's career. He tells some cracking anecdotes about Kerry Packer as well. Uh, in terms of our thank yous for today, thank you to uh, the Bad Producer Productions Network, uh, Jay Mueller, Astrid Edwards and Dave Collins, who of course edits us magnificently week in, week out. Thanks to Seabus Super, who've been so loyal and so generous to us over a long period of time. Likewise, our patrons, patron.com forward slash the final word. If you've got your Nerd pledge in, that's absolutely fantastic. If you want to be part of the fun, all you need to do is jump on patreon.com forward slash the final word and pop in a nerd pledge. It's straightforward, all there on the website with the details. Uh, thanks to everyone who's reviewed and rated us on iTunes over the last few weeks and, and ensured in turn that more people keep listening to the show week in, week out, which we're really grateful for, of course. Um, it's been a long few months for all of us, uh, locked away as we are, but um, being able to bring this uh, to everyone a couple of times a week has been a real joy. So thank you for listening 
evening. Thanks to Daniel Norcross for being my co-host in Jeff's absence this week. Jeff will be back, of course, for the encore edition, which becomes Mark Nicholas Part 2 on the weekend. Until then, bye for now. I had to go about-